into the Word. Um, let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we invite Your presence. We welcome Your presence as we open the Scriptures. You are the author of the Scriptures. You are the illuminator and the explainer of the Scriptures. And we invite Your ministry among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in John chapter 15. And John chapter 15 is this wonderful picture of the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser. We're the branches. And as I mentioned last week, we have one job description if we want to produce fruit. And that job description is to abide in the vine. Now, we don't understand so much how agriculture happened in the ancient world. I doubt any of you have grown grapes for grape production or wine production, but we don't really have an idea about how this worked. This was a very hard form of agriculture in the ancient world. Now, the disciples who, who knew about this would know about how hard it was, but Jesus made it incredibly easy. He said, you've got one job description, and your job description is to abide in, remain in, remain connected to the vine. And so, um, Jesus now begins to spell out what that means, and He does it in five pictures, five pictures, five snapshots, five word pictures of what it means to abide in the vine. Now, when you think about cameras these days and snapshots, it's incredible what's taken place in our world because we live in the era of digital photography. So you think about 2013 through 2019, the dramatic rise in photography. And uh, there, you know, back, you can't hardly read that, I realize right now, but in 2014, there was 810 billion pictures taken, 1 trillion in 2015, 1.1 1 .1 in 2016. They're predicting this meteoric rise of 14 trillion pictures taken by 2019. The math goes like this. 7.5 billion people are in the world. There are 5 billion mobile phones. If 80% have cameras, that's 4 billion people taking pictures. If they take 10 pictures per day, it gets way up there into the double-digit trillions. And some of these pictures are pretty, in, pretty incredible. Um, we've seen snapshots of pain. Here's a, a boy who's wanting food. He's hungry. He's in Burma snapped on an iPhone, another where people are taking pictures of their homes as the fires are rushing down into Ventura County, about ready to sweep away a neighborhood. And one of my favorites, people lying on the ground as the bulls are rat ready to go out into the crowds and run the streets of, uh, of Spain. I wouldn't be doing that. I wouldn't be doing that. And one more snapshot Please do not do this at home or in your car. Take a selfie while you're, of your family while you're driving. Not a, good, not a good idea. Adam, don't do that. Don't do that when you're driving. Not a good idea. But, you know, what, what I love about, about where we are with pictures is that pictures snap a culture. They snap you in a place where you're doing life. And these disciples are crossing the Kidron Valley at this, at this point. There's the Kidron Valley up on the screens. And they come upon this grapevine. 
And I can see Jesus lifting up a branch and, and putting his hand on the vine and saying, guys, I'm the vine. You're the branches. What I want you to do is abide in me. You abide in me, and I'll abide in you. Now, if you're one of those disciples, you would have said, okay, Jesus, what does that look like? Like, net it out for me. Give me the bottom line. What does it look like if I'm living a life where I'm abiding in you? So Jesus gives us five snapshots, five pictures. And these pictures are going to depict the culture of your life when you're abiding in Christ. Let's look at the first one. First, one, first picture is this. Transformation looks like answered prayer. If you're abiding in Christ and you are growing in that abiding relationship, you are going to see more and more examples of answered prayer. Here's the verse, John 15 and verse, verse 7. Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my, that my disciples. What's amazing about this verse is you, you hear the big-hearted offer of, of Jesus to pray. He's, God is open-handed. There's a sense of abundance and generosity. It almost sounds like God is a genie to bottle. All I have to do is rub on that, that, that lamp and this, this mist will come out and God will say, I'll give you three wishes. Anything you want, I'll give it to you. Is that how it works? That's not how it works. That's not how it works. What he's talking about is the abiding relationship. As you abide in Christ... And as you pray as an, as an abider in Christ, God begins to shape and adjust and shift your prayers so that your values become more of His values. As you're abiding in Christ and Jesus is abiding with you, your prayers are beginning to change. And you're now praying prayers that are in accord with God's will, prayers that God loves to answer. So I'll give you some examples. For many years, I would pray the prayer, don't laugh, Lord, please change my wife. Not a good prayer to pray. Lord, please change my wife. On, on almost every personality test we take, we are pretty much polar opposites. Whether it's the Gallup Strengths Finder or the Berkman Assessment, we're pretty much polar opposites. And for a good number of years, I didn't gra fully grasp the way, ways that we were different. And my prayer was, Lord, cha change her. Change her. And so... Um, through the process of being in more of an abiding relationship with Jesus, God began to birth in me the prayer, Lord, change me. Lord, change the me that I bring into fellowship with my wife. Lord, change the me that I bring into connection with her in our marriage. Change, change me. Through the course of Celebrate Recovery, Cindy was praying those same kinds of prayers. Lord, Lord, change me. Change the kind of me that I bring into fellowship with Rod. And God has progressively answered those prayers, especially over the past 14, 15 years. The point is, as we're abiding in Christ, He shifts the way that we pray so that we're praying more in line with His will. I'll give you another example. I, was, I graduated with a doctorate in ministry in the year 2009, and I wanted in the biggest way to get another degree. I really wanted that. I would pray. I would walk in our neighborhood and pray, Lord, this is what I want. I'm laying this out before you. I pray that you would honor this prayer. 
And one day I heard the inaudible voice of God saying, I want you to pursue this particular coaching certification. So I did and pursued half a dozen or more. And God has used those significantly inside Grace Community Church and outside Grace Community Church. But as I was abiding, God began to shift my prayers so that they were more in line with what He was doing in my life. And what I'm, what I'm saying is that as you abide in Christ, He will do that, and you will encounter a growing set of answered prayers because you're praying more in line with His will. Notice the outcome here. The outcome is, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. That's in the context of answered prayer. So as God was answering prayers within our, our marriage, guess what, what our kids were doing? They were going, what, you, you guys are different. What's going, what's going on with you guys? Our kids were seeing our discipleship as a result of those answered prayers, and God was glorified. So there's this, this external result, right? People see your discipleship, and then there's this upward result the God of the universe is glorified. You can't add to God's glory in any way, but you sure can magnify the glory that's already there. And that, that happens as you abide in Christ and you encounter His leadership and direction in prayer, and you encounter more and more examples of answer prayer. That's picture number one. Now, let me give you a quick takeaway about picture number one. You remember that several weeks ago in our Prayer 101 series, I talked about big hairy, audacious goals. That is a, a statement from the book Built to Last by James Collins. And he was talking about the Boeing organization. In the 1960s, they were planning on crafting the Boeing 747, and it was a big, hairy, audacious goal. And they adopted it, and look what happened. I mean, the Boeing 747 has enjoyed decades of, of service. Well, I asked you in the prayer series to think about praying big, hairy, audacious prayers, prayers that are so big that only God could answer those prayers. As you pray those prayers and abide in Christ, God will take those big, hairy, audacious prayers and He will adjust those and shift those and change your heart so that those big prayers are in line with the big things that He has in store for you. But it's really important to take the risk and start praying those big kinds of prayers and allow God to fellowship with you and maybe shift those so that they're in line with His, with His will. That's picture number one. Here's picture number two. Transformation looks like obedience empowered by love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. You know, obedience is often very misunderstood. We envision obedience as a, as a have-to thing. Like, like we got to do this. I don't want to do this, but I have to do it. It's like, it's like a puppy or a cute little dog. That, that dog wants to get up on his hind legs and he wants to graze your counter. 
Or that dog wants to get up on his hind legs and just bother you because he's so friendly and wants to be petted. And so what do you do? You, you, you tug at his chain, you know, and you get him down and you take him back to his crate and you're dragging him back to his crate. And it's, it's half to obedience. He doesn't want to obey, but you're pulling like he has to do it. And we misunderstand obedience in the Christian life that same way, like, okay, God, you commanded me to do this. I don't want to do it. But if I have to, I guess I will. That's not the way obedience is designed to work. Or we look at it like, like a two-year-old or a four-year-old who you want them to obey and they don't, they don't, they don't want to obey. So this is not my, my daughter here, but my daughter Kristen one time many years ago, I said, okay, Kristen, I want you to be in your room, time out, 10 minutes. So Kristen went into a room. She edged all the way up to the door and she put her foot over the edge of the door. And then she looked at me very innocently, like, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm, I'm obeying you. And then she put her second foot out there. And we envision obedience that way. Like, okay, I'm going to obey, but I sure want to find out what the boundaries are, because I want to go right up to those boundaries, because we don't want to obey. Well, ob obedience in this verse is not like that at all. This obedience is a want-to obedience where you abide in Christ and He births in you a desire to obey. So imagine you've got a young swimmer who wants to be a triathlete or you have a young cyclist who wants to compete in an upcoming major cycling event and they hire a coach and the coach gets them to do what they don't want to do in light of the long-term goal. Because this young triathlete, she might not want to swim those extra laps. And the cyclist might not want to ride that extra 30 miles. But the coach gets them to do it because they have a vision for the goal. They want to achieve that goal. That's what want-to obedience is like. As you're abiding in Christ, He creates in you a want to kind of obedience that shifts your, your whole motivation for obeying. I recently read the book by Dina Castor. Uh, if you haven't read this book and you're into any sort of athletics, it's a very good book to read. Dina Castor had natural talents as a runner, but she could not win the big, the big meet. You know, it was second and third and seventh and fourth and but she could never win the big meet. So she, she got a coach, and the coach pushed her beyond what she thought she could do. And pretty soon she started winning more and more meets, and now I think she still holds the women's marathon record. She is, this is a fabulous book. Want to obedience is reflected in, in that, that book. So how do you get to want to obedience? Well, it, it begins by, by love. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. Think about that for a second. What Jesus is saying is, I want, you to, I want you to rest. I want you to relax. I want you to remain in that, that space where you encounter my love. How many of you done that this week? We took the time out. Just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relax and rest down into the love of God. It's really easy to not do that because we're so busy. 
Abiding in Christ means we, re we rest and remain in that love. If you don't feel His love, you still will thank Him and praise Him that He loves you. Sometimes you'll do this and you'll feel it. Sometimes you do this and you won't feel it. But as you rest in His love, He begins to develop in you obedience. Um, Joe Ehrman, a uh, good friend of ours from Baltimore, he played for the Detroit Lions and he played for the, played for the Baltimore Colts. And he began to coach a private uh, school, a high school in, in uh, Baltimore. And Jeffrey Marks wrote a best-selling book about his life. And what Joe Ehrman used to say to his, to his team is he said, said, guys, our role as coaches is to love you. Your role as players is to love each other. That's the big picture. Got it? Most of the boys didn't get it. They had to continue to cast that, cast that vision. What Jeffrey Marks said was that by the end of the season, these guys were a football powerhouse that ended up winning the state and a bunch of other, bunch of other championships. But what Joe Ehrman was doing is the same thing that John Wooden did at UCLA, the same thing that Bobby Dodd did at Georgia, the same thing that A. Robinson did at Grambling. Introducing a culture of love that empowered obedience. So now we bring it down to brass tacks. Empowering obedience means that you pay attention to, to God's commands. Again, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. I put the picture of the dog up there because Again, I'm bringing Watson into the, into the story here. Watson is our Belgian Malinois hound mix, and he is very hard to train. He's in, he's in doggy boarding school right now, as I said last week. And we went and visited him on Friday. You know, felt like a parent going to, you know, the school for parents' night. We visited, visited Watson. Now, just before we, we took Watson... To the doggy boarding school, I was really training him. I, I think it was bothering Cindy. I was training him so much with the clicker and with the rewards. But before we, he left, Watson crawled up into my lap. And what was that all about? Well, through, through obeying me, there was a responsiveness to my person. Now that he's in doggy boarding school, he's responding to the lady who's training him. And, she, and he was right next to her side the whole time. By obeying her, he is responsive to her person. And the more you engage in this want to obedience toward God, the more you are responsive to the person of God and the more he births obedience into your life. What I'm saying is progressively building habits of obedience begins to inflame love. Some of you are there. You know what I'm talking about. I can see you nodding your head. Some of you are not there yet. You're thinking, what? Like, I, I'm still in the have-to stage. I'm not in the want-to stage yet. As you abide, you make that switch from have-to to want-to, and that's where spiritual growth really begins to take off. Let's look now at the third snapshot of transformation. Transformation also looks like refreshed emotions. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You know, when I look at that verse, the thing that jumps out at me is that Jesus has joy. 
He says that on several occasions, especially in the Gospel of John. He is a happy, joyful, exuberantly lavish God who loves to be joyful in your presence, who loves to be joyful over you as a follower of Jesus. So, Jesus has joy, and it's possible that our joy can be made full. So let's, let's think about how, how that might, might happen for a second. Let's say that you're looking at that verse and you say, I don't have joy. I deal with depression. I deal with anxiety. I deal with a personality that's a little bit more like, like Eeyore than Winnie the Pooh. I, I just, it's just grays for me. It's just minor key for me. What Jesus is saying is that as you consistently abide in Him, it's possible that Jesus' joy might become infused into your life so that you will have His joy. He's not talking about you ramping up happiness that you don't have. He's not talking about you manufacturing emotions that are inconsistent with who you are. What He's saying is as you abide in Him, His joy will come down into your life at a supernatural level and you will encounter some of that joy. Now, here's what you do with that joy when that happens. You let it flow. I love reading Brene Brown's stuff. Brene Brown is really good about talking about positive emotions. And Brene Brown says whenever she would feel a positive emotion, she would shut it down. And she, she would say, well, well uh, no, that's not going to happen to us. She said she went, came back from a... I love Brene, Brene Brown's vulnerability. She, she came back from a date with her husband. And she had this thought, what if there's a terrorist in the front bushes? Like, why would you even think that? But sometimes we do think about stuff like that, weird stuff like that. Had this great time with her husband. What if there's a terrorist in the bushes? Sometimes we shut down positive emotions by thinking about catastrophic thoughts. So when Jesus begins to infuse His joy inside, you let that joy flow through gratitude. We see commands about that in, in the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 1, rejoice always. So when, when Jesus' emotions of joy come through you, let it flow, express gratitude, tell Him what you're thankful for. Another verse, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Things could be bad. But Jesus is infusing some positive emotions in you. Let it flow. Go with it. Express gratitude. Um, I read a lot of the psychological literature in gratitude. And two guys that I, I've read recently, Robert Emmons and Michael McCulloch, both at the University of California and University of Miami, respectively, uh, did this research on gratitude. They had, they had one group that uh, took a number of weeks and they wrote out everything that was irritating in a given day. Another group that wrote out everything that they were really grateful for at the end of a given day. Did that for three weeks. Guess which group had more stuff on their sheet? The gratitude people or the irritation people? The irritation people. Because once you start thinking about what you're irritated at, you can really let it rip. Those people then did a, a self-report on their level of happiness. It was low. The people who had the gratitude found that they were writing a few things and then more things and then, <clears throat> then more things and then more things. And pretty soon their gratitude list was super long. 
and their self-reported happiness levels were also very high. So if Jesus is infusing gratitude in your life, the thing to do is flow with that and engage in the discipline of, uh, of more and more gratitude. That leads us to the fourth picture. The fourth picture is that transformation looks like rejuvenated relationships. Um, I wanna, won't read the first, these, first, these six verses, 12 through 17, but I want to read the bookend verses and the verse in the middle. John 5, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, these things I have commanded you so that you will love one another. Okay, the four verses in the middle of those two are all about love. And the most important one is the one Jesus says in 5.13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. As you are in the habit of abiding in Christ and Christ is abiding in you, you begin to develop a philosophy of friendship where you take on the role of a servant. You're willing to lay down your life for somebody else. Um, <clears throat> I want you to think about an historical event in the second century. The gospel is exploding in the ancient world. Romans would be in their villas. They would be in their city. And this, these plagues would come through the city of Rome and Roman parents, if you can believe this, would take their children who were sick and they would lay them in the front yard or by the side of the road. And then these parents would leave the city of Rome and go to their villa out in the country and leave their child to die. It's hard for us to believe that people did that, but that was common practice in the ancient world. It happened all the time. So the Christians taking that verse would go and pick up these sick orphaned ch children and they, they would either nurse them until they died or they would nurse them back to health. These children then would become followers of Christ, and one of the reasons why the church grew so, grew so explosively in the ancient world was that was the habit of believers. And the Christians who were picking up the orphans and taking care of them were laying down their lives for these children. Some of them, some of the, the caregivers died as a result of the child's disease being transferred to the adult caregiver, but they were, they were, they were taking that verse and they were, they were living it out. We see examples of this happening in the military. Uh, one of the most notable ones is Mike Mansour, Navy SEAL, was in Ramadi in 2003. He jumped on a live grenade. All of the guys around him were saved. He died 30 minutes after jumping on the grenade. At his memorial service, guess what verse they came to? John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, Mike Mansoor, than he laid down his life for his friends. But this is not just about, uh, about, um, about dying. I'll give you another example, though. Here's Gareth Griffith. He's on the gurney. Gareth Griffith was a 21-year-old management consultant from London. He's vacationing in Florida. He decides he wants to go skydiving. So he gets a professional skydiver to teach him how to do it, and Gareth is attached to the professional skydiver. The skydiver jumps out of the plane, opens his rear chute, doesn't open, pulls the, pulls the lever, doesn't open. Opens his front chute, malfunctions. So now they're, they're going down, they're going down. So the professional skydiver gets himself underneath 
Gareth Griffith, and he cushions the fall. Gareth Griffith lives. Skydiver, professional skydiver instructor dies. Great example. Greater love had no man than this. Then you lay down your life for your friends. It's not just about dying for somebody. It's about living for them as well. So, you know, what you, uh, <clears throat> what you see in examples of people who, who've done this, here's Robertson McQuilkin, late president of Columbia International University. He's progressing in his career. He's doing great at the university. And his wife comes out with Alzheimer's. This particular brand of Alzheimer's meant she was very paranoid when he was out of her sight. So he says at age 55, I'm going to retire, and I'm going to be, become my wife's full-time caregiver. And he does for eight years, for eight years, taking kind of the pinnacle of his career, laying that down to care for a wife who for the, for, for the last five years of her life didn't even know who he was. Greater love has no one than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. If you're abiding in Christ, your philosophy of friendships and relationships begins to shift so that it's not all about you. It's about the people whom you have the opportunity to serve. <clears throat> By the way, in 2011, uh, Pat Robertson of, of um, 700 Club fame suggested it might be okay to divorce a wife who had Alzheimer's. He says she's sort of into a, li uh, into a living death. Now, it might, might be okay to be done. That's radically different than what Jesus proposes in John 15, 13. Greater love is no one than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. Quick recap of where we are so far. If you abide in Christ and you're being transformed, it looks like a growing series of answered prayers, obedience fueled by love, refreshed emotions, rejuvenated relationships, and here's the fifth and final snapshot. If we're being transformed, we're encountering the privilege of being Jesus' friend. Here's what he says. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. When they heard the word friend, they were very biblically literate. Their minds were riveted right back to Moses and uh, to uh, Abraham in Genesis 18 and Moses in Exodus 33. In Genesis 18, God uses a term about Abraham that means Abraham was his friend. Of course, James flat out says that. James says Abraham was called a friend of God. Same thing with Moses, Exodus 33, 11, thus says the Lord, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friends. The only place in the Old Testament where somebody's called a friend of God, Moses and Abraham. Those guys, though, are kind of awkward friends of God, though, because Abraham wasn't always the greatest and most obedient person. Moses had his problems with obedience. Moses, at one point in time, God said, Moses, I want you to get water out of the rock. Moses says, okay, I'm, he, God said, speak to the rock. Moses took his stick and he smashes the rock twice and he says, shall we, meaning God and I, bring water out of the rock, you rebels? Like he's equating himself to having the same kind of powers that God had. That was bad. 
He forfeited the promised land because of that. And yet, and yet, he's called a friend of God. God befriends even those who don't perfectly obey. Abraham would be with his wife, Sarah. He would say, Sarah, we're in a dangerous place, so here's the deal. You're going to be my sister, and you're going to say that you're my sister, and maybe, maybe we'll be spared any hard, any hard things happening to us. That was bad. And yet, God is a friend of both Abraham and Moses. God, in His grace, befriends people who are imperfect, people who are, are, are sinners. Do you encounter that, that friendship relationship? You know, when, when, you've, when you've blown it, when you've made a mistake, when you've sinned, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, God probably is mad at me, or maybe He needs time to cool off a little bit. Do you encounter God as friend in that time? A friend who graciously loves you and invites you back into fellowship with Himself. God um, wants to be your friend. So here's, the, here's how we experience His friendship. It comes through the Word, John 17, and the Spirit. You're going you're to know about God's friendship love with you through the Word, and you're going to encounter God spiritually through the Spirit, and it's through the Word and Spirit both that we live in a friendship relationship with God. Okay, so Jesus and His disciples are walking through the Kidron Valley. Jesus begins teaching about the life of abiding. He puts His hand on a, on a vine. He puts His hand on the branch. He says, I'm, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Abide in me, and I'll abide in you. Remain connected to me. Relate to me interactively. Abide in me, and I'll abide in you. He's talking about an interactive relationship. And Jesus spells out the results. And transformation looks like this. A growing series of answered prayers, obedience fueled by love, refreshed emotions, rejuvenated relationships, and being in a friendship relationship with Jesus. And really, the, the main thing he's talking about is this. Transform people, enjoy the presence of God, they enjoy the power of God, they live in the love of God in such a way that they live out the life of God. That's what, he was, what he's talking about. If you're being transformed, you're enjoying His presence, His power, and His love so that you have the ability to live out His life and produce much fruit. I'm going to turn the lights down low for a second, I want to, and I want to uh, just say, if, if you would like to encounter transformation this week, this month, this year, um, I'm going to have you stand. Let's everybody close your eyes. Don't need to look about who else is standing, who's not standing. But if you want to encounter transformation, I invite you to stand. And I want to pray a prayer of blessing, or you can do that right now if that expresses the desire of your heart. Father, I want to pray for everybody who is standing. And I ask, Father God, that you would do a work of transformation in their lives. Father, I pray that they would be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray they would be transformed by the power of your word. I pray they would be transformed by the abiding ministry of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that when they look back on, on this season, they would see visible, tangible examples of transformation because they've got some rejuvenated relationships, because they're encountering you as, as, a, as a friend, because they're living in a place of joy, 
because there's new answered prayers. Father, I pray that you would bring them into a season of transformation. Lord, we can't do this on our own. You never ask us to work hard to produce fruit. You never, you never do that. Lord, what you ask us to do is to abide. And Lord, we love the privilege of being able, being able to do that. We're going to ask Sean to come up, and Sean's going to close us in, in prayer. Sovereign God, I praise your name, and I thank you for the fact that we have access to you in your throne room, that we have access to your love, to your kindness, and to your friendship. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you've given us access to the power of the resurrected Lord. Lord, I just ask that you would help us as we leave here this morning, that we would live in that power and through that power so that others may come to know you to know you as God and Lord of their lives. Lord, bless this congregation as they leave here. May all we do bring glory to your name. Amen.